while the pandemic brought challenges, it also brought a bursting open at the seams in terms of the dialogue around what people are actually experiencing on the inside as it relates to our mental health. That's Dr. Christine U. Moutier, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's Chief Medical Officer. For young people, we know that suicide is the second leading cause of death. Overall in our nation, it is the 10th leading cause of death. Dr. Moutier shares her insights on pediatric and adult suicidal ideation, the importance of screening early and often, and the connection between child mental health and mental health as an adult. She's joined by Dr. Corey Green, the Director of Behavioral Health Education and Integration at Weill Cornell Medicine. And only half of the pediatricians surveyed felt prepared on suicide prevention. As part of our grant and part of training residents, we did a baseline survey, and this is really promising. Dr. Green shares her case study on how they've implemented risk reduction efforts in her own practice, all on this episode of Moving Medicine. This is a very timely moment uh, for obvious reasons, uh, still dealing with the pandemic and the way that those disruptions have led to changes in so many of our populations and our lives. And um, it is a time where in the national dialogue around mental health and suicide prevention, even before the pandemic, but especially during the pandemic, there have been um, changes in terms of opening up, realizing that mental health is a part of health, that we can shed stigma, but it's also a time when we need to take steps within the health system arena to really address suicide as the public health crisis that it is. And so I have a visual here just outlining the various layers of a public health approach to suicide prevention, which of course clinicians are a part of, but are not the whole picture. This does involve the need to universally educate individuals, families, in the schools, faith organizations, workplaces, but um, at the end of the day where everyone always is referred if they are deemed to be having suicidal thoughts or be carrying any increase in suicide risk is to um, their health practitioner. And oftentimes that starts with primary care or the emergency department. Many people um, don't actually end up making it to a mental health professional, although of course uh, we, we want more to, but there is absolutely a role for every one of us and particularly in the health system to play when it comes to reducing suicide risk. So what has been happening even pre-pandemic is that starting in about the year 2000, the national rate of suicide has been rising steadily year over year for about 20 years. And then a little glimmer of hope here in 2019, we saw the first downturn in that national rate of suicide. And while the numbers are still preliminary for the year 2020, uh, we do know that there was a reduction in overall deaths to suicide. Um, however, while there was an increase in overdose death. So um, it's obviously not, not all good news from a mortality um, and morbidity standpoint in the behavioral health arena. 
Um, but but this uh, we are hoping that this will be the start of a trend, especially in light of the fact that while the pandemic brought challenges, it also brought an, a bursting open up of the seams in terms of the dialogue around what people are actually experiencing on the inside as it relates to our mental health. And so for young people, we know that suicide is the second leading cause of death. Um, overall in our nation, it is the 10th leading cause of death. Now, the science around not only neuroscience and mental health, but around suicide risk and prevention has been changing a lot. Stigma is going down and people are speaking out more. And that advocacy on the part of people with their own lived experience, having survived an attempt, and certainly for people who have lost loved ones to suicide, that combination of grassroots advocacy and science has led us to understand that some of the old lexicon around suicide has needed to change. And so um, we wanna make sure that you as health professionals know that the phrase commit suicide is no longer recommended. I know it's a bit of a challenge to root it out from our, um, our lexicon, but it is possible to do that. And we recommend using plain language the, the preferred phrase is died by suicide. And that's really to take out that unintended um, perpetuation of the myth that, that suicide is somehow a morally repre reprehensible um, act. We know from the science that it is the culmination of intense suffering and a combination of risk factors in the brain, um, in, in one's mental health and in one's surrounding environment. Um, that leads to that outcome. And, and people who succumb are really to be viewed more as the victims of that culmination of psychosocial and health risk factors, just like other leading causes of death are. Now, one other thing that we know that is um, very important is that because so much has been changing in the science and in the advocacy arena, that suicide wasn't always viewed as an actual focus of to for clinical training and as a clinical target and that has really been changing very appropriately of recent um, so we know that there are opportunities within all aspects of the health system to recognize an individual patient's risk and to take key steps to reduce that risk. And that's what we're really gonna be focusing today. Um, and when, when Dr. Green uh, gives her portion of the talk, you'll be hearing an example of how in a pediatric setting, what those steps of screening, assessment, and care can look like. But I do wanna say that that can be done for um, across the entire age span of our patient population. So now we're talking a little bit about this moment and with the pandemic, but remember that when it comes to suicide risk, it is not a one cause effect phenomenon. And so the experiences people are having during the pandemic are relevant and critically important, but we know that suicide risk oftentimes has its roots related to genetics, early childhood events, trauma, and other things. Um, and it's not to say that the current environment isn't important, but it's to understand the complexity here so that we know that there are multiple points of entry for prevention to occur. So some of the top findings, um, and this will do a, a not, I won't be able to do justice to the top scientific findings, but just to understand, as I was mentioning, 
that while genetics play a role, they don't determine destiny. While epigenetics are real in terms of trauma and the expression of genes into proteins, so is psychotherapy and some of the steps that Dr. Green is going to go over. That can actually change um, a person's risk into building up their resilience and, and protection. And um, while suicide contagion is a real phenomenon, I think what has happened oftentimes is that has gotten conflated with the opportunity to ask if somebody is having suicidal thoughts, which is not at all the same issue as contagion. Um, and so it is important to ask very directly if you are worried about someone. And the last thing I'll highlight is that sense of connection and interpersonal support and connectedness, as well as mental health treatment are some of the most protective effects, um, as well as these, these steps that we're gonna be hearing about in the primary care setting. So fortunately, science is providing interventions that no, not only identify risk, but are being shown through um, randomized controlled trials to reduce subsequent suicide attempts and reduce suicide risk. And this is something that we really didn't have even um, not that long ago, like 10 to 15 years ago, um, many of the findings that we're gonna go over today are just now culminating with enough science to really put them forward in a, in a consensus sort of expert way as the recommended steps. So some of those steps um, that Dr. Green will be going over in more detail, and, and I'm gonna cover the health system standpoint. Um, I think she will cover a bit more of the individual practitioner and maybe both levels. But from, you know, if you are a health system leader, know that, and, and by the way, the Joint Commission supports all of these efforts um, in terms of their national patient safety goal on suicide risk, that providing education to all of your staff, even your non-clinical staff, related to suicide prevention, providing training on lethal means counseling, routinely asking for consent on the part of patients to involve family members or other um, key people in their life in some aspects of their care is something really, really helpful for suicide prevention um, because we don't necessarily need to be doing that at the moment of acute risk, but to be doing that ongoing during the process of care and certainly starting it from the beginning incorporating in some routine screening, some routine ways to briefly assess for suicide risk. Again, from a system standpoint, one of the most powerful things that, that you can do um, besides developing a whole collaborative care and integrative care model would be something like putting caring communications into place for particular um, vulnerable patients. And, and when their risk is detected, that they get a series of phone calls, emails, text messages, ongoing over a period of months. And that science is very strong showing reduction in subsequent suicide attempts for that group of patients who just simply got that those caring communications over time. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox.
and of course, incorporating the electronic health record into all of this so that these steps can be made clear for practitioners. So everyone is trained on what to do rather than having the individual practitioner feeling that the burden is entirely on them um, and, and not supported by the system and ways to get the, the patient the help that they need and have time for the clinician to take care of the patient. But um, asking and listening is very recommended as I've mentioned, health systems, clinicians, and loved ones all have a role to play. Um, limiting access to lethal means, we didn't really talk much about that, but counseling patients and their family members when appropriate on lethal means in the environment is a key suicide risk reducing step. And um, I do wanna thank you. I know that you all are on the front lines and um, it has not been an easy time. This is for us as health professionals, if we find ourselves or our colleagues struggling, know that there is help available in many different um, avenues that are safe and confidential for you. I'll turn it over to Dr. Green. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be presenting with a true expert um, who gave us a lot of great material. And, and that's my disclosure. I am not an expert in suicide. I am not a lead researcher and I don't have it all figured out, but I am a pediatrician who spent the past decade really thinking about how we can integrate mental health into pediatric care. And along that road, I have realized that suicide is now being the second leading cause of death starting at age 10 is something that we really need to pay attention to. Um, this is kind of a continuum of care of mental health that you can integrate into practice. Um, we've created policy statements. I've worked with the American Academy of Pediatrics who mental health integration is a top priority as a suicide prevention. Um, but when it comes to suicide, people panic. And let me just step back again. I said I'm not an expert, but about Two years ago, I did write a small grant with my psychiatry counterpart to become part of a zero suicide learning collaborative. Now that gave me knowledge, skills, and a little bit of resources to really start implementing um, suicide screening, suicide prevention, and actually training pediatric residents to um, do a better job of identification and responding to suicide risk. So when we talk about suicide prevention, is it preventable? We have to look at it you know, through that lens. As a primary care clinician, prevention is our cornerstone. As a pediatrician, prevention, promotion, identify early. I mean, that is what we do, right? We have vaccines and I can count on two hands how many cases of meningitis I've seen compared to my mentors. We give anticipatory guidance as part of the promotion of mental health, uh, as part of the promotion anticipatory guidance to wear helmets so that if you fall, you, you're not gonna hurt your head. There's really no reason that suicide risk should be any different. Um, mental health in general, we should be promoting positive parenting strategies, ways to build resilience and social connectedness in children. A little bit of background on pediatricians' experiences and attitudes. A national survey done by the American Academy of Pediatrics um, to practicing pediatricians who saw patients over the age of nine found that eight out of 10 had a patient attempt suicide in their career. So suicide is scary for a lot of us and we, we wanna refer, but we're seeing it, right? And only half of the pediatricians surveyed felt prepared on suicide prevention. As part of our grant and part of training residents, we did a baseline survey, and this is really promising. 
100% of our sample, which is about uh, 50 residents, agreed that it is the pediatricians responsible to identify suicide risk. And almost 100%, 96, think it's the pediatricians responsibility to perform a safety plan when risk identified. So this is great. The younger generation has it. A lot of us panic when we see suicide. But we have to learn what the tools are, learn the science, and learn how to get help so that we don't panic because we really have to look at this through a prevention lens. This um, is from the AAP's uh, toolkit on suicide prevention, really looking at a fact sheet for primary care clinicians and what we should be doing. Screening, managing a positive screen, counseling about lethal means restriction, ongoing care and follow-up. And we'll dive into each of those a little bit now. So identification and screening. I will get a little bit into which screening tool we chose after this, but, but these are the ways to identify. A pedi pediatric clinicians love our heads assessment, right? And it's grown with four S's, social media, but the S's are sexual activity, safety, suicide, social media. So there is the validated history, but we do know that a lot of patients um, disclose more when they're writing it down, when it's by themselves. Um, so screening tools are great and help, and they also help with um, how you word questions. Sometimes when we're busy and there are patients waiting, you get really mixed up and maybe you're not really asking about killing but hurt and you get confused. So we really endorse using screening tools. So this is what we use, the PHQ-9 modified for teens, which is the PHQ-9 plus a couple of questions about suicide. So although the PHQ-9 modified for teens has not been validated in research, it has been shown to increase, increase identification over just the normal PHQ-9. There is a question, number nine, that is on all of the PHQs, thoughts that you would be better off dead or hurting yourself in some way. And then there are two additional questions at the bottom. Um, has there been a time in the past month when you've had thoughts? Have you ever in your life attempted? Now, these are questions that can then help you um, identify the risk and then want to do a further assessment. And right now, this is um, what we use. We are currently in the process of making this an, an electronic screen. Um, sending it out electronically before the visit is tricky because if there is a safety concern, who's gonna see it and when, but we are creating safety in baskets so that our social work team gets notified. Um, and what we do, which there really isn't evidence to support this, is if any of those three questions were positive in the PHQ modified for teen, we then use the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale. Now, some would say you're gonna miss people just with the PHQ modified for teens and you should be doing this, or I will show you an additional screen in a second, um, those as well, because it will catch more. I'm at the stage where I need to get our rate from 60% screening to 99% screening. So I, I can't ask people to do a, a secondary screen. Um, and the PHQ-9A really helps with identification. The CSSRS really um, is what is triggered in our electronic health record if the PHQ modified teen is positive. Um, and here are the questions. Um, it doesn't look like this in the EHR, although I wish it did because the color coding really helps you with your risk assessment, which we'll get to. Next slide. And here is the ASQ, Ask Suicide Screening Questions. 
Um, this is another tool that was created and studied and has been validated in outpatient pediatric practice, primary care practice in many different places. Um, and it comes with a whole toolkit. So what do you do if a screen is positive? Well, first, our inclination is to panic, but it's to back up and kind of ignore that there are patients waiting um, and go back to our superpowers. Um, common factors are communication skills um, that are universal to all types of psychotherapy, regardless of the disorder. It is um, the interpersonal skills that primary care clinicians have so naturally, but when you're busy or you're, you're worried because of a patient's safety, we, we sometimes forget them. The American Academy of Pediatrics really endorses using common factors as an intervention, and we have the help mnemonic um, that, that helps us with what, what, it, what those common factors are. Hope for improvement, empathy for E, language, loyalty, permission. This is a big one that I wasn't doing until I started working in around common factors. When you see something positive, instead of just going straight into more personal questions, step back. Is it okay if I ask you more about this? And I started doing that and it really helps build the rapport. Partnership plan. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. So what are you doing after you engage the patient, after you use those superpower interpersonal skills? You want to assess the level of risk and intervene accordingly, right? How safe is this child? And kids are a little bit different here. Bullying is a risk factor that we don't always think about. Abuse, impulsivity, you know, we don't, our kiddos with ADHD who um, may be very impulsive, we don't always think about suicide, but that's a risk factor. Um, my LGBTQ youth are the ones who are presenting more and more right now with suicidality. So on the left, those are your risk factors that might be a little bit more unique to children. And on the right are the protective factors that I think are a little bit more unique to children. School and activities, not work, right? Future oriented. I've, I've had patients tell me they don't wanna live, but yet they really wanna be a mom or a pediatrician when they grow up, which you know makes my heart rate drop a little because that's a good protective factor. There, is also, there are also tools, part of the ASQ toolkit has this brief suicide safety assessment to help you go through what are the protective and risk factors and how safe is this child. So number one is praise the patient. It goes along with that H of hope, it's identify strengths. Thank you so much for disclosing this to me, that was very brave. Number two is to assess the patient. And what does that mean? This tool and the follow-up CSSRS tool for assessment ask questions about frequency. How, how many times a day do you think of suicidality? Um, how many times a week? If you have a plan. One thing I've learned is you really have to separate out that plan from a method, right? You might have a plan to jump off a building, but if you don't have access to one, you don't really have a method. So little things you have to think through, uh, mental health symptoms. And, and the reason this tool is really wonderful is because it helps you with the language. It helps you 
go through every little detail and the language. For instance, it asks about plan. Do you have a plan to kill yourself? If yes, what is it? If no, if you were going to kill yourself, how would you do it? A lot of us might not think of that follow-up question, um, but it's important to ask. And these are really direct words that we know we should use, but when you're flustered and patients are waiting and time is an issue, it's nice to have toolkits to kind of go and help guide you what you're saying. What do you do after you ask the patient all of these questions? You have to bring in the parent. Now we all know that confidentiality um, does not apply when safety is an issue. Um, I have disclosed to parents very often um, about their child's safety and what they've been thinking. And, and then the goal is to ask them if they've noticed the same. Sometimes parents know and kids didn't, don't think they do. Um, and again, this is more uh, for youth. This is a brief suicide safety assessment tool for youth. So it really stresses the, par the parent and guardian. And then you wanna make a safety plan, which I'll go more into in a second and determine disposition. That is ER, home, follow up with you, and no matter what, you want to provide resources. Um, every um, patient of mine who endorses some sort of suicidality has to, in that moment, put in their cell phone um, the 1-800 suicide prevention hotline number. Counseling about lethal means restriction has to be part of what you're doing as you're going through that safety assessment as you're doing a safety plan. This alone saves lives. If you have time to do nothing, you do this. We, there, there is science um, that you do this. It can be very morbid asking these questions, but you have to. Are there weapons? Um, what kind of sharp objects are there? Like razors, pens for youth who self-harm as well. You have to really get detailed about sharp objects that you have to um, put away. Asking about rope, suffocation, medications. This is a resource that can help guide your conversation. And then there is also science to show that doing a safety plan can help, um, can help save lives as well. It is not a safety contract. We know those don't work, but this is what we use. After we determine the risk assessment, if you're not read, we do a safety plan which looks like this. It asks about warning signs, coping strategies, listening to music, talking to a friend, writing down the phone numbers of people you can call to distract you, writing down the phone number of an adult you can ask for help, putting in those professional hotlines, and then step six, making the environment safe, like the lethal means restriction. An ongoing care and follow-up kind of determines how things go after. A lot of kids get better when their parents know is what I'm noticing, it, it takes the relief. Um, you want to get them into mental health services. Right now, it's two to three months to get into services. So I'm seeing some of these patients every two weeks via video visit um, until they can get into care, um, as long as I know that they're at a risk level that I'm comfortable with. You just heard from Dr. Christine U. Moutier and Dr. Corey Green in collaboration with the Behavioral Health Integration Collaborative's Overcoming Obstacles series. You can subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine.